0: Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics. It's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tulloch.
1: Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. Rachel, how are you feeling today? Oh, I just, you know, I feel terrific, and I'm sure I sound terrific. Um,
0: That's why Ian did the Open today.
1: (laughs) Yeah, this is Ian Tullock here from The Athletic. Rachel, Dory, you're affiliated with a bunch of different things right now. Where where are you from? What's it say in your Twitter bio? Uh, Most importantly, York University. Um,
0: I got hired by Elite Prospects, so that's a thing. Um, And then I write for LeafsNation.com. Uh, as well.
1: but yeah, And of course, formerly of the New Jersey Devils and uh, Damon Severson Fan Club. so
0: President of the Damon Severson Fan Club, yes.
1: I mean, I'd like to become a member, but it's it's all good. Uh, you, can be, you can be president if you really want to. But what are we going to be talking about today? Because there are a few contracts that were signed, and we got a few great mailbag questions. So I wasn't sure what we wanted to start with first today.
0: I feel like we should start with a Thomas Shabbat contract because am I the only one that felt like it came right out of the blue?
1: Yeah, it's funny. Whenever players sign kind of a year before they need to be signed, you're not quite expecting it. I know with the Clayton Keller contract, everyone was thinking, whoa, you know, he was not expecting Clayton Keller to get signed. Thomas Shabbat out of the blue. I know the Ottawa Senators put out that tweet. That video, Thomas, yeah, of the <laughs> it was the Spider-Man three scene where he's like doing the jazz, walking down the street. Except it's Thomas Shabbat and uh, turning down uh, offers to make sure that he can sign with the Suns. They do everything wrong on social media, so the fact that they did that, like, I I really appreciate it. That was one of my favorite things that a team's done over the last uh, year or so.
0: I know there. It's now we're seeing teams like Carolina with their post game stuff, and we're seeing more kind of social media stuff teams are trying to make it fun which is a nice change from the culture of we have no fun type of yeah
1: i was gonna say for like the nba and the nfl are two leagues that i can't get enough of because of how fun the product is but the nhl has always been in my opinion the best sport but the worst league and i'd like to see them slowly transition to a bit more fun but that's another topic for another day let's talk about thomas shabbat eight years eight million dollars Initially, that sounds like a lot of money, but the thing that you have to remember with these deals when you sign them a year early is that you're kind of forecasting the cap in the future. One interesting thing is that there have been rumors that the cap might not go up next year, and it might not even go up the year after, which is terrifying for teams who have forecasted the cap going up in their projections. So what do we have to take out of that? Because I found that really interesting when I saw, I think it was Chris Johnston talking about it. Um, I feel like...
0: I wanna say we both agree that this Thomas Shabbat contract is going to be incredibly
1: valuable. Um like eight million is a lot of money. For a number one defenseman? Are we sure that Thomas Shabbat is a number one defenseman against top competition at five on five? I, That's I am. That's my biggest question, I guess. I am. Okay. Yes. I really like him. I think I think he's phenomenal offensively. I think he's excellent on the power play. I think if you're down a goal, you absolutely want him on the ice. But in the same vein as a Morgan Riley, I'm not sure if he's a true number one defenseman in the way that he drives play. But also, you look at some of the, the peripherals, it's like, while well, he's been in Ottawa for the last <laughs> year or yeah. two. And it's, uh, no one's had success there except Mark Stone and, and Brady Kachuk, I guess. And even that, like,
0: I don't know. I think you made a good point, though, with the cap being stagnant. I mean, Ottawa obviously is not a cap team so that doesn't really impact them a whole lot um i think that this kind of sets the bar though as far as shabbat kachuk and the rest of ottawa is concerned that basically shabbat will be the highest paid defenseman brady kachuk likely will be the highest paid forward and that'll kind of be the end especially if the cap stays stagnant because it helps with that kind of stuff right a lot of times it's old oh, cap percentage, so my client deserves more. Well, if the cap's not going up, you, your client ain't getting more.
1: Like, I that's don't know, just... is, is Brady Kachuk gonna get more than uh, Bobby Ryan's seven point two five million? Uh, Dear God. The question questions you have to ask yourself.
0: Oh man! <laughs> well, let's see what his brother Matthew does, because I'm sure we'll get into that. He's still unsigned and skating in Toronto.
1: There are a few fascinating RFAs, you know, we all talk about Mitch Marner, Miko Rantanen, but the the Matthew Kachuk scenario where Calgary's actually, they, they don't have enough cap space to sign him right now. You have Patrick Lane, who is throwing shade at his coaches, yeah. teammates, organization. Braden Point, who apparently got offered like $5.7 million. And he's probably going to take it, too, knowing the friggin' Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, it's frustrating. Man, but... if
0: Braden Point takes $5.7 million, he shouldn't be obligated to play more than, like, 50 games.
1: I mean, it's, it's the David Pasternak thing, you know? It's just, like, the player realizes that everyone else on the team is, is getting screwed over, so he takes a bit less, and... I mean, if you can build a culture like that as a team, like that, that's what the Steve Eismans of the world do incredibly well, and that's what Boston's done really well over the last few years. And then you have teams like the Leafs who kind of overpay for their star talent, so they really need to find market inefficiencies on the bottom half of their roster. So when it, when it, in that regard, do you think that this Thomas Shabbat contract is an overpay relative to the market for RFA defensemen coming off of their first deal?
0: Well, I think it's a long-term contract, so it's a little different than uh, what we saw with Wierenski and McAvoy. I mean, I would be pretty surprised if Charlie McAvoy came out of the bridge deal sign signed and not have probably like an 8 or 9 attached to his name by the end of that. Um, I think Thomas Shabbat's a better defenseman than Ivan Provorov, so naturally he got more money. Um, but the interesting thing about the Shabbat contract, which is way different than some of the other rfas is there's no signing bonus money there is zero signing bonus money
1: that is such an ottawa senator's contract
0: right but think about it think about what that does for the rest of the organization well thomas shabbat didn't get signing bonuses so neither are you that's a thing. good
1: precedent to set right. if you're an organization like the Ottawa Senators. Then again, if they'd just given them a bit of signing bonus in the first year, they pretty, probably could have got the AAV to come down a bit because current dollars are worth more than future dollars because you know, it's money in pocket that you can put in the bank and get interest on. So I don't know. It's, it, is that short-sighted, or is this just the nature of having no money when you're a professional sports team run by Eugene Melnick? I don't know. I
0: feel like it's a combination of both, but I think... Honest, I really do think Thomas Shabbat outplays the value of this contract. Um,
1: I was Not in surprised. year one or year two, but I guess in an eight-year contract yeah. with a 22-year-old, that's never really what you're looking at.
0: I was kind of surprised, though, that he went the eight years. I mean, it shows a commitment to Ottawa and good on him, right? Because it sends a clear message, but I feel like Shabbat's kind of one of those defensemen where if he would have signed that five- or six-year deal, he could have cashed in later on as well.
1: Yeah, you never know, like, would he have had a Norris under his belt? Would he have had, like, an 80- or 90-point season under his belt if everything went right one year and the shooting percentages went up and whatnot? Because he just seems like one of those players who produces tons of points, which tends to be overvalued. But it's funny, because I feel like at $8 even though I don't think he's worth that today, you're forecasting this over the long term of the contract... I'm just wondering the last time a defenseman got paid this kind of money coming off of an ELC. I just, I don't remember it. I'm thinking maybe Aaron Ekblad. And that one looks a bit better now, but that one looks pretty bad for the first couple of years of the deal, so... I feel like this is where the market kind of has changed a little bit, though,
0: because you haven't seen that. And I, with the situation that Boston's in, um, I kind of expected McAvoy to get a bridge deal. Um, Were Rensky because he had an up and down year, that was a bit of a different situation. I think if Orensky had another solid year and improved defensively, he probably gets that long term extension. Whereas with Thomas Jabot, Ottawa's kind of in this unique situation where a they need players to commit to them. They can't have somebody leaving in five or six years. Um, it because it just then you don't buck the cycle kind of thing.
1: All right. How about this? Who would you rather have over the next eight years? Uh, Thomas Shabbat at $8 million or Josh Morrissey at 6.25? Oh,
0: probably Josh Morrissey.
1: And I agree. And that's kind of my point. And we look at that, we talk about the market resetting, but McAvoy's contract kind of falls in line with what we've seen in previous bridge deals.
0: But he's still going to be an RFA when that's done. So then what is that RFA defenseman going to get? He's going to get eight or nine.
1: I mean we said the same thing for Kucherov when he was coming off of his you know 4.8 million dollar larceny what a joke that contract was And then he and then he signed a 9.5 million dollar contract where it's like dude you're a top 5 player in the NHL you should be getting more than 9.5 million but I don't know there's some teams who seem to be able to pay less for players and then we joke that in places like Buffalo there's the Buffalo tax in Toronto for whatever reason they just seem to be paying more for their RFA players than other teams seem to be, at least on the superstar end of the spectrum. I don't know. I, I just feel like Thomas Shabbat, even though I really like him, $8 million seems like a lot coming out of an ELC. But I guess if you're getting the eight years locked down, maybe that's what you need to pay to keep a guy in Ottawa because yep. how many guys have stayed in Ottawa over the last few years? Then again, if you guys have really wanted to, it's just really on Ottawa for not paying You know, Mark Stone. It's on Ottawa for not paying Eric Carlson. So.
0: Okay, so here's the thing with the Shabbat contract, now that you're Ottawa, you've got your star defenseman locked up to eight years, right? And they've set the ceiling and it likely will be that no one will be that no one gets paid more than Thomas Shabbat. So does that work with other teams? Um like you see that in Colorado right now. I feel like Nathan McKinnon's contract is not a great example.
1: But I was about to say, I feel like everyone recognizes that McKinnon was an idiot for signing that contract and he's vastly outperformed it to the point where it looks like a misprint
0: right but is it possible to set that ceiling where you say okay you will not make more than this player kind of situation or in the Ottawa case you don't get signing bonuses if our best player isn't getting signing bonuses then neither are you does that is that an effective way to set a precedent or do you think that's not going to work
1: Can we look at other examples that aren't the Toronto Maple Leafs? Because I feel like there's a lot of Maple Leafs bias in this podcast because we're both from the GTA. So are there other teams we can look at where that's clearly been the example or that's clearly been the precedent that's been set?
0: Uh, In Nashville, they have a precedent. Nobody gets a no trade clause or a no move clause, something like that.
1: I know that Lou Morello has never liked giving rookies the uh, <laughs> signing bonuses. bonuses. And that's funny because we said we wouldn't talk about the Leafs and then Mitch Marner notoriously was really angry about not getting those bonuses. Yeah,
0: but if you look at Nashville, so it's the same thing where they don't give out no trade clauses. They give out signing bonuses, but they don't give out no trade clauses. Um, and I think that's a really smart way to go about doing things. You don't want to capstrap yourself where you can't move a player because you've given him a no-movement clause type of situation, and it's, it's clearly worked
1: for Nashville. Um, like I think just, you can look at a lot of examples of literally just setting some kind of precedent or a, the culture on a team, where if Steven Stamkos is taking less than he's worth on the open market, then you're going to take less than you're worth on well, the Detroit open market. Well, Detroit did it for years. <laughs> but the other way around. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> If Danny Kaiser's getting paid more than he deserves, then so is Jonathan Erickson, so is Luke Glendening, so is Justin Abdelkader, so is Franz Nielsen. We're setting a culture here of overpaying mid-tier to low-end talent. That's just, that's how you build a team in the modern era.
0: Yeah, and for me, like, I would rather <laughs> overpay my superstars than overpay, like, who... Whomever is playing on the third and fourth line. Okay. Right? Like if I've I'm heard giving... this
1: argument so many times, and I agree with it, but can I just say one thing? Go ahead. I'd would r- I'd, I'd rather overpay nobody. Okay. Well, here's Ian... a crazy thought: just don't overpay your players.
0: Okay. Well, you know that's not going to happen.
1: I so mean, if, if you have smart, to pick you one, you can do that. I'd rather not pick any of. It. I'd rather not overpay my star RFA's. I'd rather not overpay veterans. Not overpay my goaltending. I'd rather save money at every position and make the most of my cap space.
0: Yeah, I feel like that's just not a thing that exists.
1: Tampa so, Bay, uh, Carolina, really? mm. Boston. You look at the teams that are, in you my opinion, think the You don't think 9.5 for Vasilevsky is a bit of an overpay? I do, but again... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wait, how much is it for Vasilevsky? I think it's 9.5. Holy shit. Okay. um, Man, John Gibson's going to get paid. When's his contract? Or is he already locked up? Uh, he's locked up. He signed an extension, I think, during the season. Test test. Ew, 6.4 million
0: dollars? He's probably the best goalie in the league. Yeah, it was not a great extension. Mike. For 8 years. Yeah, it was not not good.
1: He signed it before the season started. Ooh.
0: Okay, so here's here's one for you. Would you let's say let's move to Vancouver. Would you rather have Tyler Myers, Antoine Roussel, uh who else did? It? Jay Beagle. Or would you rather have let's say all of those players equal 12 million
1: that works both ways the toronto maple leafs you can talk about paying for star talent but how about uh paying a first round pick to get rid of six million dollars of marlo who yeah, guess that what by the great. way he might not even be in the league anymore you might have just been able to put him on ltir how about the, the you know nikita zaitsev contract how about cody goddamn cc uh, who sorry moratorium we're not going to talk about him but that's my point is that Every team has some of these bad contracts. You can say, oh, well, that's not the case on this team. Well, guess what? A lot of teams have a bad contract here, a bad contract there. But overall, I feel like if you can consistently underpay your RFAs by about a million, not overpay your UFA talent, and the best way to do that is just not sign them. Not sign them, yeah. Unless (laughs) unless it's a superstar like Tavares, Panarin, etc. But yeah, don't don't pay for those mid-tier guys, because we've seen those come back to bite you in the ass with the Andrew Lads, the Kyle Ocposos, Milan Lucicis. But... I think the smartest teams are just not overpaying anyone and are trying to underpay everyone. Look at Carolina's cap sheet. Can you find one overpaid player? Ooh. Yeah, they have Tulski, though. <laughs> well, we can't just say, oh, but they have Tulski. Don't, I don't know if that's No, I'm that saying fan. they have
0: tools available to them. Every team that, does. Mm, does every team use them in the same way that Carolina uses Tulski? I would put at my entire life savings on the answer being no.
1: Okay. To be fair, Tulski is a smart mind who sees value where others don't, but I feel like teams have that who might not necessarily do it with numbers and stats, but they might have a really good scouting staff in Nashville. They might have a really good development staff in Anaheim, for example. I'm just thinking of examples of teams who have consistently churned out talent and been able to have market efficiencies without doing it the same way that, say, an Eric Tolski does, but there's still ways to accomplish it.
0: Yeah, that's fair. I mean... I still think that there's a ton of teams who don't recognize the market inefficiency that apparently still exists with hiring people like Eric Tulski and Alex Mandricke and Andrew Thomas. Um, But as far as contracts go, I think that especially with Shabbat, it, it sets the precedent in Ottawa that I think was desperately needed. You know what I'm saying? Okay.
1: So we talk again. We talk about how is the market changing? Has the RFA market shifted this off season? I feel like the Brock Besser contract is a great example of the fact that I don't really think it has changed that much. That looks like a deal we would have seen a couple of years ago. Player, by the way, signing a bridge deal for Brock Besser is one of the dumbest things you could have done for Vancouver. Signing guys like Tyler Myers to big money, signing these fourth liners to to money in term. And then not having enough money to lock up your actual star goal scorer so that you're going to have to pay through the nose for him in three years. I don't think that's smart team building. But again, I feel like Vancouver put Jim Benning into that situation by saying, you need to make this the playoffs this season or you're out. Right. So, if I were in his shoes, and my life depended on that, yeah, I'd do everything the same way he did. I might not spend the money on the players he did, but I would spend the money on short-term players who are going to help me make the playoffs this year. And oh, I'll worry about Brock Besser's deal later. You know, I'll worry about uh, paying Pedersen and Hughes in a few years because guess what? I might not be there. My team doesn't make the playoffs. So with Besser, it's funny. I don't like the fact that they signed him to a bridge deal. I think that that's short-sighted. I agree. I I understand it, though. It's three years, 8.75 million. No, 5.875. Sorry, what did I say? 8.75. Whoops. That would be a lot. That That would be be a lot. (laughs) That would be like a Mitch Marner three-year bridge deal. Good God. I don't even talk about it. But with Brock Besser, it's funny. I feel like he's worth that. It reminds me a bit of the Nylander contract, except it's less term. But, like, but naturally, with less term, you're paid less money. I don't know. I like Brock Besser as a goal scorer. I think he's overvalued as a play driver. But in like a poor man's Patrick Lonnie kind of way... I'd want him on my team. I'd want him on my top unit power play. I'd want him in my top six. I just need to give him more ozone starts and shelter him against top competition. But I don't know. I think this is a fair contract. Is, is there any hot take you can make on this one?
0: No, I, I think it's a fair contract too. I think the more concerning thing is going to be two seasons from now when they're paying Roussel Beagle and Louis Erickson $12 million, but they have to sign both of Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes. That's going to be a one. And then the problem.
1: year after that, they'll have to sign Besser. And right, that's, and they'll that's still the have,
0: have JT Miller, Michael Furland. Like, it's just, it's not good.
1: Yeah, I like Michael Furland in the role he provides. I like JT Miller. But not I at 525, five I don't like JT Miller. Yeah, you might in a couple of years. We talked about this cap going up. If he's a top six talent for 5.25, that might be the going rate, you know. In fact, it might be a discount. Okay,
0: but if the cap doesn't go up in two years and you have to sign Pedersen and Hughes, that's a
1: big problem. If the cap doesn't go up, that's a big problem for, I think, every team.
0: Yeah, there might have to do like a rollback or something like that.
1: They always do that 5% escalator and then the players get mad about escrow because I'm convinced players don't understand math. But uh, Really? I think a bunch real- <laughs> of players who
0: don't have university educations don't understand math? You're shocked by that?
1: The real concern is how the NHL is calculating hockey-generated ge- uh, revenue Ooh, and the fact that they yeah. might be inflating it to the point where it's not a 50-50 split. I think that's the bigger concern there in the um, The big
0: concern for me is the players don't see a dime of the expansion fee. They didn't see a dime from Vegas, and they're not seeing a dime from Seattle. How that's not hockey-related revenue, I couldn't even tell you but that's what the players should be negotiating for. Like, we need to redefine what hockey-related revenue is, and this is probably a different conversation. But you're talking about over a billion dollars in revenue that's just getting slotted right into the owner's pockets and the players see nothing of it. But we want to sit here and complain about paying our players what we actually signed them to. No, we need escrow. Like, honestly, get lost.
1: On that note, I have a question for you. Okay. It's not on that note. I'm just going back to Brock Besser.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I get frustrated when people want to talk about how ownership complains. It's like, you're a billionaire. Be quiet.
1: (laughs) So just to quickly finish up on Brock Besser, what is your opinion on the players who are like him? The players who provide a ton of value offensively with their goal scoring talent, but are Poor players defensively, don't drive play at 5-on-5. It's kind of that empty calorie points, but at the same time, if you have the shooting talent to beat a goalie from distance, we've seen in the NBA that that results in your team having tons of spacing offensively because teams have to come out and guard you really high, and in the NHL, really high in the offensive zone, that's going to open up space down low for your other players to get open. And it's one of those things where it's really difficult to measure But I like Brock Besser and his ability to do that. I just don't like the other elements of his game. What's a Phil Kessel, a a Thomas Vanek, a a Brock Besser, that type of player? How much value do they have in the modern game? Because I feel like we used to overrate them a bit. But are we starting to underrate them a bit now that we know more about the advanced stats? I think
0: you mentioned two names there, Phil Kessel and Brock Besser. Besser is still young. Um like I think he's yeah, he's twenty two, so it, to say that he is gonna be terrible defensively for the next ten years might be a little bit of a stretch. But I, I don't think he's winning
1: any sulkies anytime. Oh so.
0: no, he's not winning any sulkies. Um but I think you make a valid point in the fact that we overrated them and now it's gone so far back the other way that they're almost underrated. Like, you're telling me that you wouldn't want Brock Besser on your team? Are you, like, are you out of your mind? Well, goal I think the, the concern is...
1: there is that it's a big name because of the big goal totals, but at the end of the day, is it the same value as someone who's much better defensively and you just don't see those goals in the back of the net because it's slower over a larger period of time?
0: Listen, ah, uh, if you could guarantee me thirty goals a season or somewhere in and around that, you you take that because goal scoring is the hardest thing to do in hockey, and that's why your goal scorers get paid what they get paid.
1: Would you rather have Brock Besser or Tivu Teravainen?
0: I haven't watched enough of Teravainen to say, and I'm okay. not making an assessment based solely on numbers on the internet.
1: No worries. I would I would prefer Teravainen personally. Okay, uh, that. That, that's kind of what I'm getting at, is that I'm not sure if you just watch Teravainen for one game, you see his true value, because the things he does away from the puck, winning puck battles, uh, just backtracking, slowly making passes out of the defensive zone, up the ice with possession, it's just... These are things that over a long period of time are going to lead to positive results. But Brock Besser, you watch him on the highlights, you see a, a bar down wrist shot from the top of the circle. You go, holy shit. So I just feel like one catches your eye a bit easier, whereas the other, it's it's the same concept as a defenseman who moves the puck slowly out every time versus that flashy defenseman like a Brett Burns. It's, you know, the Jacob Slavens of the world are undervalued, even though they provide more value than some of those big point total guys.
0: Yeah, I think why people value the goal scoring specifically more and why I value it more than even assists is because when you are a goal scorer, you have a new unique ability to turn the game on its head almost immediately, right? Think about Ovechkin. The Caps could be down 3-1 with four minutes left in the game. Ovechkin pots a goal, it's like, oh boy, kind Of thing, right? And obviously, Ovechkin's an extreme example because he provides value far outside his need for defense,
1: right? I was gonna say, like, if you're protecting a league, you have Mark Stone on the ice that really helps you sustain that lead and win that game. Yeah, but
0: how many Mark Stones are there in the league? Like, the guy should have won the Selkie this year.
1: That should have been in the heart consideration, honestly. Agreed.
0: Uh, Him, Miko Koivu's underrated when it comes to. His defensive play, but because he doesn't create enough offensively, it's not seen as valuable because y- you have to score more goals.
1: It's than Sean the other team to win. It's basically no one yeah. paid attention to him until he played on the first line and put up a lot of points with Giroux and Voreck. But he was always amazing defensively.
0: Right, but that's just not because it's much harder to quantify, and I think. We'll have a podcast about how you quantify defense at some point, Um, whereas with offense, it's like controlled zone entries, shot assists, actual primary assists, goals. It's, It's one of those things, right? Which is why I make the argument that a goal scorer is more valuable than a playmaker, because I can make the play to you, but if you can't put the puck in the net, then it does me no good. Right? You've got to be able to put the puck in the net, and that's why guys like Besser, even though they have defensive, um, they're lacking in that sort of category, they're still more valuable because they score goals. And that is still the most valuable thing in the NHL right now, until we can learn to quantify how valuable forwards are defensively.
1: I can't wait until we find better ways of quantifying defense because I feel like if you look at other sports, the MLB struggled with this for a while. You know, the fact that for the longest time it was the on base percentage guys who were undervalued teams put way too many resources into their speedy outfielder who couldn't hit. And it's like, Hey, guess what? This guy isn't the greatest fielder, but he gets on base all the time. So that became the market and efficiency in the early two thousands. Everyone wanted to get these guys who got on base, but then as teams got better at quantifying defense, you learned that, Hey, this center fielder who isn't the fastest, but he's really quick on balls and he covers a lot of ground in center field, or this shortstop who, yeah, he makes a few errors, but his range and his ability to cut down balls in the infield, he's the best defensive shortstop in the MLB. This is value we weren't seeing a few years ago, so... We started to see it shift the other way, where defense and base running became undervalued. Relief pitching became undervalued. Sometimes it changes based on the information you have. So it'll be in- interesting to see how the ebbs and flows go in hockey. For the longest time, you know, got, look at the Carolina Hurricanes. Their roster is basically underrated. Players who move the puck up the ice slowly, good defensive players, Jordan Stahl, Tivu and That's the undervalued thing in the NHL right now. But in the future, I think it might be defensive specialists, you know? I I think it might be a physical presence who's also good at hockey, you know? It's not Ben Harper, maybe like a Tom Wilson.
0: I, I think Tom Wilson's very much undervalued. If he could actually just keep his nonsense in check, he would be a premier NHL forward because someone like that is so difficult to find where they're a physical presence, but they can also make you pay. So if you get caught trying to instigate with them and you they go on the power play, he can score against you, right? It's kind of that they provide value in other forms but are still valuable in terms of their ability to contribute what they're supposed to do, which in Tom Wilson's case is offense.
1: All right, let's quickly touch on value here. What are your thoughts on the value of the Brandon Carlo contract? He signed one for two years at 2.8 eight, five million, just call it two point nine. Two years two point nine million. Travis Keneckney, six years five point five million. I think we can spend a short time in this because Brandon Carlo I think is I think he's tall. I think he's an NHL player. I just don't think he's as good as a lot of you know the old school people think he is. I think he's just more of a you know he's tall. I don't know. Is he a bottom pairing guy? Is
0: he like a number four? I think he's a five. Like I think yeah. he's a four-five type of situation. No,
1: right. I, th- I think alongside a puck mover, you can play him on your second team yes. and, and be fine. You know, like alongside if you played Tory him with Krug, Tory he's Krug, fine. <laughs> exactly, or even Matt Grizzlik, who I really like, who we can talk about because I know someone had a, a Boston question for us. Travis Connecting, I feel like we can just skip because that that looks like a perfectly fair contract to me. I saw that and I was like, yeah, okay. I don't think anyone's going to have any problems. I don't think anyone's looking at that going, oh my God, big overpay, or what a steal. It's just, yep, Travis Konechny, good player, five and a half million, six years. Sounds about right. Yep, that's exactly kind of what my thought was. And I think
0: that's pretty much what it'll pan out to be kind of thing, right? He could play up and down your lineup.
1: Would you rather have Travis Konechny or Dermot, Bracco, and Jerkals? That's the big question on uh, Leafs Twitter. I'm not even entertaining <laughs> that discussion, my God.
0: The fact that people still discuss that, like, move on.
1: <laughs> All right, uh, thoughts on Boston altogether, because we can get into some of their shorter defensemen here. What was the question specifically about Boston's defense? Because this could tie into the Brandon Carlos signing, the, how much money they're going to have next year and which defensemen they look at keeping. So the narrative in Boston seems to be that you can't win with defensemen under
0: six feet tall. Now, that might be because everyone in Boston likes to play this rough brand of hockey that just you punch people in the face, a la like Adam McQuaid type of situation. So with Krug and Grizzly both free agents at the end of this season, does that narrative have merit? Like, is that going to impact whether Boston signs them or not?
1: I just want to point out the, the easy counter argument. They made it to the Cup Final last year with Tori Krug, Matt yeah. Gryzlik, and Connor Clifton playing minutes, all of them under six feet tall. Uh, their best defenseman was not Zdeno Chara, it was Charlie McAvoy, who is six feet on the dot. Uh, and I feel like that's generous. <laughs> height can be valuable if you have it in addition to you know mobility and puck moving ability, but height doesn't matter nearly as much today as it did 10, 15 years ago in the slug and tug era before the 2005 lockout. Yeah. Height mattered, man. If you were Darian Hatcher or Chris Pronger, or you didn't even need to be able to make a pass. If you could knock someone out that had a ton of value that doesn't really have as much value anymore. If you can't make a breakout pass. So I really value Tory Krug. I really value Matt Grizzlick. I think that it would be a mistake to value the John Moores and the Brandon Carlos and the Kevin Millers of the world and not the Tory Krug's and the Matt Grizzlicks, because I feel like the shifty little puck movers provide way more value and consistently across the board always come out on top when they're on the ice, whereas the other players are consistently stuck in the defensive zone because of their inability to move the puck up the ice. So that's why I've never been a huge fan of Brandon Carlo. That's why I've always been a huge fan of Tori Krug and Matt Grizzlick. But that'll be interesting to see what they do because, yeah, Tori Krug's an unrestricted free agent this summer. Matt Grizzlick's an RFA. I don't know if... Offer sheets are actually a thing because you know we've no, seen. No, he lots has of...
0: arbitration, which means he can be offer sheeted.
1: Okay, all
0: right. Now whether he is or not is no one offer sheets discuss- anyone.
1: We should yeah. we should not consider RFA's <laughs> available in any way. It's just not the way the league works.
0: No, because then you upset hockey men, and then they try and get revenge, and then you end up with threatenings of barn fights. Like it's. Oh, it's
1: I mean. It, in their defense, it makes sense to never sign an offer sheet. If you can have 100% collusion, then that keeps everybody's salary down and you can pay the players less. Owners love it. So do you think Boston, not should they, do you think Boston re-signs Krug and Grizzlick? I'm not sure if they can afford to re-sign Krug depending on what he gets in the open market, you know? Right, because he's, be, he's
0: 28. So he'll be entering 29-30. Like, that's not
1: great. Who are, the pre- who are the premier free agents this year? Because Tyler Myers was the crown jewel on defense this summer, and he got $6 million. Yeah,
0: that wasn't great.
1: Um, Tori Krug's kind of the opposite type of defenseman. But he still feels like someone that a team like Vancouver would love to have, even though they don't have enough money for him now. Or a team like Montreal would love to have a Tory Krug on their on the left side of their defense. And they have the cap space. I mean, they tried to give it to Sebastian Ajo, right?
0: Yeah, but they if they wanted Sebastian Ajo, they should have uh, probably gone with more. Okay, so UFAs for next year. This is actually kind of interesting. Um... Alex Peter Angelo is a UFA.
1: He'll probably re-sign, I'd imagine, he will probably but we'll re-sign. S- we'll see. Um, Tyson Berry. By the way, do you call him Peter Angelo?
0: Yeah, I did. Isn't it Petrangelo? I have heard it pronounced every which way, so if someone wants to actually send me a pronunciation from those sheets that they give the broadcasters, I'm
1: all in. I was gonna say, if you're gonna get mad at me for mispronouncing Saginaw, I just feel like uh, you've got excuse
0: it. me, that is a widely accepted that is so different. First of all, you called Damon Severson Severson for like the first five weeks of this podcast. I'm
1: still not sure which it is. I, it's I go Severson. back and forth. Eh. could be it's Severson if he has a bad game, Severson if he has a good game. Okay, you know, back to UFA defensemen. Um, I wanted to talk about Saginaw because I actually drove through there last oh week. God. We'll, we'll talk about that later.
0: So you've got Tyson Berry, um, Tori Krug, Zach Bogosian, Sammy Votnin, Justin Falk... TJ Brody, Cody CeCe, Chris Tanev. Oh, baby. I feel like... Oh, Jake Muzzin. Roman Yossi? Did
1: he not resign? sign Travis re-sign Ooh. Roman Yossi, I feel like, signs a huge extension with Nashville. And it's yeah, funny. I feel like he's not... They talk Yossi. about how they, they can't pay their big defenseman because they trade away Subban, and, and then Yossi's gonna... How much you want to bet Yossi signs, like, a $9-10 contract? Oh, my God. I don't even... He's well he's, he's the captain. 30 years old. He's the ca- he's the captain. I I bet you they threw big money I bet you it's like out. a 5-year contract with this like This team just threw w- eight No, it's million Nashville. Dollars. It'll be like
0: 8 million dollars or something ridiculous. For 8 like
1: that. years. Like they signed Matt Duchesne to what? Uh, was it a 7-year contract? Two,
0: three, yeah, four, I think it was 7. Four, six, 7. 7 years. Anyways, so I feel like your point stands in that with the defensemen on the market, they're they're going to be paid.
1: Right? I think Someone like Tori Krug will be. Matt Grizzlick's a more interesting one. I I, I I bet you Boston can afford to keep Matt Grizzlick. Whether or not they value him over a John Moore or someone like that is, is yet oh, to God. be seen. But I just I think that's a mistake and a smart team should snatch up Grizzlick, play him on your second pairing, and yeah. watch him succeed because dude's really good at hockey. Reminds me a lot of Travis Dermot, like fantastic gap control, quick on puck retrievals. Is fantastic, shifting four checkers in the defensive zone and makes a quick little breakup pass up the ice. Boom, you're on offense, and then he's really aggressive without the puck, takes it away from the other team, you get the puck back. Yeah, he, he might lose a one-on-one puck battle. Yeah, he might not be that big physical presence you want, but these type of defensemen are driving results. Quinn Hughes is five foot nine, 5'10", and he's one of the best defensive prospects in hockey, him and Mikhail Makar, basically.
0: Okay, so Boston's situation is... A, they definitely can afford to re-sign Grizzly because UFAs for this year are Chera, Kevin Miller, Tori Krug, Yoki Nordstrom, Chris Wagner, Charlie Coyle, like, they can afford to re-sign him. They also have to sign Jake DeBrusque. Um, so That's going to be an interesting
1: negotiation because I don't really know what he's worth. And he does not have arbitration rights. Jukarask under contract for one more year at $7 million dollars. Yeah, after
0: this year. But the discussion on whether or not they can afford to keep Grizzly, they definitely can. Krug, bit of a different story. But they can and should be keeping Grizzly, and the narrative of you can't win with defensemen under six feet, I mean, if all of them are under six feet, that's obviously not ideal. But if you want to give me six of Quinn Hughes, like give me six of Quinn Hughes.
1: I don't know Pittsburgh. How how tall is Chris Letang? You know, remember that year that the blue line wasn't that great, but they had a couple really good puck movers.
0: Yes, they also the year they won the cup. Ron Hainsey was playing top pair because everyone got hurt. Everyone brings that up as if he
1: succeeded. That that pairing got crushed at five on five. Oh, I know. Uh, Chris (laughs) Letang
0: is exactly
1: six feet tall. Yeah. Okay. Well, and he's pretty good. But my point is that that style of play is what you actually care about. The puck moving ability consistently playing on offense instead of defense but like we said maybe we're not evaluating defense as importantly as we should be and may- and maybe players like the Chris Letangs and the Eric Carlson's struggle a bit more defensively than the numbers let on I- I'd be interested to know about that in a few years but only time will tell right
0: all right so next question because I think this is also more of a f- philosophical question is it worth it to play your star players on the penalty kill when they could be spending more time being productive at 5-on-5? Five five?
1: I have two answers to this question.
0: Okay, I, f- I don't know if we're going to agree, but I,
1: f- I think you know what I think about this. Okay, I think you should always have your best players on the ice for as long as humanly possible. In in the NBA, we've seen this, you know? Play that guy as long as he can go until he collapses, and he's worth more than the, whoever would be replacing him on the bench. I feel the same way about superstars in hockey. I don't think they're able to have the same impact as an NBA player because, obviously, you can't stay on the ice for the full game. You know, you can't run the entire offense through you every single time because there are bounces, you might have a couple shifts where you don't even touch the puck. That's just not the way the sport works, but... I would like to see my star players in a do-or-die playoff game, you know, in a game six, game seven, back against the wall, playing 24, 25 minutes. In a big playoff game, I'd like to play them 21, 22 minutes. So if the penalty kill is a way to get them a few extra shifts, I really like it. But I'm starting to think, why don't we just give our superstar players tons of time at 5-on-5? Because that's where they're most dominant. I feel like maybe you can make more of an impact on the game at 5-on-5 than you can at 4-on-5. But I also love the idea of speed and skill on the power play. So I don't know. I don't know if I want my first line guys on it, though. Maybe you have a lot of speedsters.
0: If you're running a power play,
1: right, and you're playing
0: against Edmonton, let's just say, right, and they throw Connor McDavid over the boards, as a power play, do you not all of a sudden have to respect the fact that Connor McDavid's on the ice versus, like, some third line guy? Because if he takes the puck off of you versus the third line guy, he's gone. Right, So you kind of have to account for that.
1: I completely agree. Here's the argument that I've heard a few people make, and I really like it. Let's say Connor McDavid, you can guarantee that he's going to play 22 minutes tonight. Okay. Would you rather that be split up between 5-on-5 five five, PK and power play, or would you rather most of that be 5-on-5, five five, some of it be PP, and none of it's penalty kill? That way you're getting all the 5-on-5 five five value of Connor McDavid, where he's the most valuable weapon in the league, bar none. Versus the penalty kill where he's very good, but maybe not to the same extent. Okay, so I think it's a little different. I think people are referring
0: to the fact that sometimes teams, kind of like Winnipeg actually, are undisciplined and take like 10 penalty minutes a night. So uh, your stars are sitting on the bench for all that time. It could be
1: situational, to be fair.
0: That's what I'm saying. So let's say you're down a goal. It's 3-2, right? And you are Tampa Bay. Right? No. The odds of them being down a goal, pretty slim compared to other people. Depends other if it's teams. the
1: playoffs or regular season.
0: Right. Okay, so 3-2, <laughs> right? You're down 3-2, and now you have to kill a penalty, but there's three minutes left in the game. If you kill the penalty, now there's only one minute. Do you play Steven Stamkos or Braden Point or whomever on the PK there? Because
1: Absolutely, yes. And that's more of a... That's you don't like- want your stars sitting there for eight or
0: nine minutes because your team decides that they want to be undisciplined and take stupid penalties you know what I'm saying
1: so I feel so, like ooh, I really like the way you brought it up there I think that's the best way of putting it it reminds me again I watch the NBA a lot crunch time the last five minutes in the regular season and the like that's that's when teams actually start trying so in the last five minutes of a close game in the regular season do you want your star player on the penalty kill do you want a Mitch Martin on the penalty kill absolutely 100% I do but I'm not sure if I want him eating up as many minutes on the penalty kill because I think he might be a more valuable player at 5-on-5. Five five. Then again, Marner might be a weird one where he's so good on the penalty kill. He might be better on the penalty kill than he is at 5-on-5 five because five, I think he might be a bit overrated at 5-on-5. Five five.
0: Uh, agreed, <laughs> but I just... I think having... It, it, I agree that it depends on situational. So if your team only takes an average of two penalties a game, then you probably don't need Matt Barzell on the penalty kill because you have other guys you can put there. But if you're... In a situation where you are up to 10 or 12 minutes in penalties and you have these guys sitting on the bench like, for I'm not only Colorado,
1: the- Columbus, Washington were high in, in power plays and penalty kills per game.
0: Right, like why Why wouldn't you play Nathan McKinnon on the penalty kill?
1: I'd do it situationally in the regular season just because I'm thinking on a Tuesday night in February, why is Steven Stamkos in the shooting lane where Shea Weber's winding up for a slap shot? That's fair. Now what about the playoffs? And that's, again, in the playoffs, do or die situation, I want my best players on the ice. Last three minutes, five minutes of a game where you need to kill off a penalty, and if it does, it really helps our chances of winning the game, guess what? I'm putting my best players on the ice. And I've always valued that about John Cooper. Uh, I like that. You know what's funny is people criticize Mike Babcock is something he's done with Zetterberg, Datsuk. He's doing it with Marner, and I bet you we start to see Austin Matthews on the least penalty kill this well, year even to help JT. him get better on the defensive side. Yeah, Morgan Riley did it the first uh, year or two under Babcock because Babcock knew he was pretty bad defensively. He's and going to play used... on the PK this year. Trust yeah, but me. it's, prob- it's, it's gonna probably it's probably going to be second unit, I would imagine. That's fine. Yeah, and that's well, what he did have... last year. But yeah. my, my point is that Morgan Riley is not a PK specialist. Uh, but no you can use it as a way to improve someone's defensive side of the game. And I've always liked it in that regard. But then you find guys who are really good at it. And guess what? If you're really good at hockey, you'll probably be good on the penalty kill. It's just the way it works usually.
0: Right. So I think the, at least from Edmonton's standpoint, if I'm down a goal and we're on the penalty kill, like Connor McDavid is going over the boards. Because even if I'm running a penalty kill, obviously the object is to kill it off and not get scored on. But the team that's running the power play, I have a lot more respect for the danger that Connor McDavid has versus someone like Milan Lucic on the penalty kill, right? Because if you turn the puck over to one guy, it's probably just going to get dumped down the ice. You turn the puck over to 97, you might be at center ice.
1: Okay, hold on. Who's one of the best players in the league with absolutely no foot speed? Because I'm trying to think if there's a really good player but he doesn't have the first-step quickness and acceleration to take away passing lanes, maybe I don't respect him as much because I'm like, is this guy really going to burn me for a breakaway? Mm.
0: Who would that be? Because it certainly isn't McKinnon. It's not Crosby.
1: Ryan O'Reilly, are you giving that same respect? But he's so good with his stick. Uh, yeah, he it, can it pick it off anyways. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah.
0: That's what I'm saying. The best players, for me, at least situationally, like I said, if you're only taking two penalties a night, they don't need to play it on the penalty kill unless it's like the end of the game and you're trying I'm to trying score. I'm trying to think
1: of some examples. If you're the, the defenseman on the blue line, you you have to make a quick saucer pass. You can feel that you have pressure on you. Who are you terrified of turning the puck over to? I don't know. I, I feel like if it's a slower player, like for example, Claude Giroux at this point of his career, Right. I'm not I'm not that terrified. And I make the pass and I take my chances. If it's Connor McDavid, I'm not making that pass. I'm not making the pass, yeah. (laughs) So I think it depends on the situation. But I can hear what you're saying, is that that added level of threat can affect the team offensively, you know, the other team, because they're not going to be as aggressive as they probably should be. Would you be? And I I guess the point. It's a really good point, because when you're losing, your back's against the wall, you need to score on the power play. You need to be as aggressive as humanly possible. You do not care about giving up a goal. You just need to score a goal. But the threat of that super fast player picking off a pass—guess what? That's that's gonna terrify you, and, and, and you're you be probably not passive, gonna make that pass. Yeah, And you're not gonna make that extra pass to open up a lane to make the seam pass to break down the defense. So it's, it it slows down a power play's aggression when they should be at their most aggressive. So, you know what? I you you've, you've changed my mind when it comes to high leverage situations such as the playoffs, late in games. But you, you still can't convince me that I want my star player in a shooting lane in the first period or second period of a game against Carolina, you know, Justin Falks winding up for a slap shot on a on a February night. I just know that I like have my opinions on shot me. blocking
0: in the first place. So I'm uh, not going to go down that road. Are going to say because... that like,
1: for, no one should block shots because just let the goalie see it? <laughs> yeah. Get out of the way.
0: My goalie, who happens to be one of my best friends, used to yell at me. She goes, "Don't even go down. I- I'm wearing equipment. Just move." I'm like, "Well, okay, fine."
1: <laughs> I don't know. We'd have to analytically discuss if the, how what's the chance of a rebound happening versus regaining possession. It's... That's not a conversation for today. But
0: I don't know. I think I agree. Like, you don't want Connor McDavid, for example, or Leon Draisaitl, or Nathan McKinnon, or Steven Stamkos, or whomever, to be blocking shots, but Patrice Bergeron is out. He's the first-line penalty kill with Brad Marchand every single time in Boston. Now, he's a Selkie winner, but
1: Brad Marchand isn't. I was gonna say, I always get, well, when you're the best defensive player of the last decade, yeah, no, that's always nice, but... It literally went from Pavel Datsuk to Patrice
0: Bergeron, and like, no in-between. <laughs> that's...
1: yeah. I think that's fair. Was there ever anyone in-between them? Um, Kopitar maybe? I feel like...
0: Miko Koivu's severely underrated, right? He plays on their penalty kill, but he's not the offensive
1: star that Datsuk and Bergeron are. I'm not sure if Hossa over-overlapped, like, in his prime. Yeah, before, before, was, oh, man. Before was Bergeron so took off and Hossa yeah. was in Detroit, Chicago. I feel like he should have won a Selkie. I would have loved to have seen him win a Selkie. Yeah, and w- now you've winger- got Mark Stone. Wingers never win Selkies, but... I not mean, since year of the Yeah. W- where did Mark Stone place? I think fourth? Ugh, embarrassing. You should have won it. Him or Koivu should have won for me. Yeah. Well, that that's the thing. Like, if you're going to give it to the better defensive player, sure. But if, it, if you're going to make it an award for the best 80-point player defensively, like, that's Mark Stone. Come on. Like, who are we but kidding? But I about? think for me, if you're going <laughs> to win the Selkie,
0: you have to play on the PK. Like, that is a compulsory aspect of being the best defensive forward in the nhl you have to play on the pk
1: now you don't need to play on the pk to win the norris in my opinion because it's just about all around value and i've always found that to be a dumb argument but for the selkie i do think it's a legitimate argument right this the well, defensive side of the game that's that's one half of the ice and guess what penalty on that half of the ice you got to defend it so yeah it's that's part of defense so i'm glad we
0: came to this agreement
1: we don't. We haven't agreed much. So I feel like we are finally agreeing today. It's good. We I don't feel like agree it's on... probably because I'm grumpy and sick. <laughs> You're an old grump who thinks it's Peter Angelo, and I'm a I'm a I'm a Saginaw Kucherov kind of guy. I was driving through Saginaw. You're uh, a staff week. and giraffe kind of guy. Yeah, it's it's funny. I didn't get a chance to tell you a lot about my road trip. So I'll, we save these like weird anecdotes, I think, for the end of the podcast. That's what I've seen all my other favorite podcasts do. And they want to do a uh, gym corner or parent corner, you know, talk about like quick stories. Driving through Saginaw, uh, great city. Soft G, not a hard G. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Population 50,000. So it is apparently real. I've been questioning whether or not it's a real city. It is real. There are signs in the U.S. when you cross the border that are very confusing. Oh, and some of them are kind of alarming too. Uh, I I crossed the border to go to the Rochester Analytics Conference, and uh, when and as I'm crossing, it's, uh, do not uh hit workers. Uh, killing workers uh is can result in fifteen thousand dollar. No, hitting hitting a worker will result in a fifteen thousand dollar fine. Killing could result into fifteen years in prison. And I'm like. Why is that a sign on the road? What's yeah, the like fuck? that's a common sense thing. Oh my God, that's terrifying.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know that means that someone actually did that, right?
1: That's kind of the scary part. It's like, do not litter over bridge. And I'm thinking, wow, thanks. Here I was thinking that. <laughs> or it said, your, your dollars are worth more. Or the US dollars are worth more here in Canada. And I'm thinking, who doesn't know that? I'd be Good terrified God. if you didn't know that Jesus When was the last time Canada's dollar was worth more? Was it like a decade ago?
0: I want to say yeah It was like during the, the recession When the dollar was
1: about even So there are signs in the, in the US As you get close to the US Where they, they really dumb things down for you I don't know if it's because Like I'm not saying Americans are dumber than Can- Canadians as a whole But dude, what the hell? America's I feel like it's a lawsuit thing. If up. the sign's
0: not there, you're going to get sued because everyone sues everyone. It's very but a litigious case, society.
1: If, guess what? If I kill a worker on the side of the, the QEW, <laughs> I don't need a sign to know that that's bad.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, oh. don't kill anyone on the QEW, okay?
1: So just for next people, for people when you're crossing the border, before you see the sign, just don't kill workers on the side of the highway. You'll see a sign to remind you, but just just as a future reference, it's it's there. I found that to be just mind blowing. Also, tolls are stupid, but that's hey man. another conversation.
0: I still have my Easy Pass. I'm not really sure why, and I also don't know how to get rid of it. So, if you're an American listener and you want to tell me how to get rid of my Easy Pass because I obviously don't need it anymore, just go ahead and tweet at me, please, because uh, I don't want to pay for that thing anymore i don't plan on driving in the u.s anymore so at least not for the foreseeable future while i finish my master's that's shameless and i will not stand for it what That i <laughs> listen i gotta
1: pay the 407 toll
0: it just is way more expensive so
1: yeah you know what maybe toll booths wouldn't be so bad here if it was just a dollar every time as opposed to the fees that we pay
0: Oh, man. It's like, if you drive on the 407 without a transponder, it's a $3.25 camera charge, plus the actual charge. It's ridiculous.
1: Yay. This is, we we, we ended talk up talking about, about the roads. <laughs> we, we could have talked about Toronto traffic. We were like, man, Yonge no. Street yesterday, eh? Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Can you believe that turn at Spadina? Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm I just actually missed
0: a-, a class because it took me two and a half hours to drive, like, 17 kilometers. Don't drive in Toronto, lesson number one. Which is, like, 11 miles. Like, it was ridiculous. I was was, so mad. Like, it ruined my whole day.
1: Park in, like, Royal York and then take a subway or something. I wasn't even
0: driving downtown. I was driving to, like, uptown. Like, I was above the 401.
1: Never drive in Toronto, lesson number one. Just don't drive in Toronto. All right, so next week,
0: we're going to do our season preview, right? Because it's... The the day before the season starts next Tuesday. Oh
1: season. baby, it's oh, it's yeah. getting down to the wire here. I, I keep forgetting it because we're in the middle of preseason and I'm seeing teams AHL lineups, but it's coming soon. Hockey and we won't is going to the be Metro here.
0: Division because we already did that on our first podcast of the year.
1: What hmm. is the first game of the season? Is it October second? Okay, so a week not to, I guess a week tomorrow. By the time this podcast comes out, right? Yeah. A week tomorrow, oh Maki is starting for good. Wow. Yeah, we're going to need an actual real preview. All right.
0: So that's next week. If you have mailbag questions regarding preview, where we're going to touch on the San Jose Sharks forward core, um, who we think is going to finish where, surprises, all that fun stuff.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, we're probably going to pick our favorites and least favorites in the division. We like going under an hour, and there are 30 teams in the NHL. 30 30- one teams in the NHL now. So if we spend 2 minutes per team, we'd still go over what we wanted to to do as a podcast. So just keep that in mind. We're not going to have an- enough time to talk about every single team. So if we if we if you're listening and you're a fan of a particular team and we slight your team, it's because we hate you personally. <laughs> just a quick heads you're up. Actually the worst. <laughs> I just need people to know that it's not because of the time constraints. It's because I genuinely hate fans of other teams
0: same like dom if your projections are not where you want them to be it's
1: because dom personally is fighting your team no it's because he's put in the model screw the new york islanders that's that's what it says in the model so you know all righty well we'll be (laughs) back fanning the flames here (laughs) (laughs) i'm just fanning the flames on on twitter i'm trying to rile everybody up all right i'm looking forward to next week hockey is coming soon we're ready. Rachel will hopefully not be as sick as today. That's the goal.
0: Man, it's not fun. I'm not even going to school. Like, we have practice today. I'm not doing that because I don't want to infect anyone else.
1: What's the official diagnosis?
0: Uh, still waiting. It's asthma for sure, but then there's other stuff that are contributing. So it's probably like, I think they tested me for like tonsillitis today. I'm like, cool. <laughs>
1: I know when I have bronchitis with my asthma, it's a goddamn nightmare. I oh my coughing, god, it's coughing the worst. up a lung. <laughs> yeah, a- you know what's funny is allergies plus asthma can sometimes mean like a, a day on the couch. That's so. me. I have I'm allergic to grass, trees, pollen, dust, leaf, like everything. Ragweed's the really bad one that oh. came in towards the end of August. But you know we've talked about traffic and now we're talking about weather and rachel's
0: disgusting sickness that makes
1: her so Allergies like batman and and uh it's it's time to go yeah i'm gonna now go not speak for the rest of the day all right we will see you next week i'm looking forward to the regular season take care everybody
0: thank you for listening to the staff and graph podcast You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and the Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff.